We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. We welcome you this morning to Fellowship Bible Church. Good to see you all here today. We turn our attention, however, to matters less mundane in Ezekiel chapter 36. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, Aha, the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, because they made you desolate and swallowed you up on every side, speaking of the mountains here, so that you become, became rather the possession of the rest of the nations, and you are taken up by the lips of the talkers and slandered by the people. Therefore, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, the valleys, the desolate wastes and the cities that have been forsaken, which became a plunder and mockery to the rest of the nations all around. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I have spoken in my burning jealousy against the rest of the nations and against all Edom, who gave my land to themselves as a possession with the whole-hearted joy and spiteful minds in order to plunder its open country. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel and say to the mountains, the hills, the rivers, and the valleys, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I have spoken in my jealousy and my fury because you have borne the shame of the nations. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I have raised my hand in an oath that surely the nations that are around you shall bear their own shame. But you, O mountains of Israel, you shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel, for they are about to come. For indeed, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you shall be tilled and sown. I will multiply men upon you, all the house of Israel, all of it, and the city shall be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will multiply upon you man and beast, and they shall increase and bear young. And I will make you inhabited as in former times, and do better for you than at your beginnings. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men to walk on you, my people Israel. They shall take, they shall take possession of you, and you shall be their inheritance no more. Shall you bereave them of children? Thus says the Lord God, because they say to you, you devour men and bereave your nation of children, therefore you shall devour men no more, nor bereave your nation any more, says the Lord God. Nor will I let you hear the taunts of the nations any more, nor bear the reproach of the peoples any more, nor shall you cause, nor shall you cause your nation to stumble any more, says the Lord God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. 
To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Listen to this, friends. This is regeneration. Then... He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Do take note, this is a new covenant text, a new covenant fulfillment will occur in the future. It has not occurred yet. However, we have the blessing of being able to have a very similar situation spiritually, not land-wise or physically, but in terms of regeneration, the Spirit of God dwelling in us, teaching us, the, uh, the, the cleansing of water. You know, this, the Lord said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. He's hearkening back to this passage right here and telling Nicodemus, hey, you should know you need to be born again, cleansed, new heart. Verse uh, 29, I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let The house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem 
on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. There can be no mistaking with the nation of Israel, can there? If they come back to a place of international prominence as they will in the kingdom, people won't be able to say, oh, what an accident of history. They will have to say that God has done it in their midst. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning in chapter 4 is where we'll be studying together. We're coming uh, near to the end of the book and I often uh, take suggestions as to what a church family might like to hear in our next series. So uh, don't be shy to share something, but don't be surprised if I get three suggestions. I can only do one of them at a time. So Philippians chapter 4, we'll start in verse number 10. But before we, well actually let's read it um, and then we'll begin our our comments on the passage. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Let us trust the Lord as we read and study that we will gain some edification here today. Verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now, you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Let's carefully understand what God's word says here. In the beginning of the letter, Paul wrote that he thanked God for the Philippian Christians and especially for their fellowship in the gospel is how he put it, from the first day until now. Do you remember that? As back in the early uh, series, early part of our series here, early days of Philippian studies back uh, months ago. From the first day until now, their fellowship in the gospel. We remarked that this not only had to do with their common sharing of life in the gospel, but also with the fact that they shared material things to the Apostle Paul to assist him in his spiritual ministry. And in this way, the epistle sent to the Philippians is something of a thank you note from the apostle to the church for their faithfulness in supporting his work. Now, he left that theme behind, and he's going to come back to it now. So think of a long thank you note with a lot of theology in the middle. That's what he has done. And, of course, he's not going to leave any theology behind here, but he's going to continue his thanksgiving. Let's talk about the situation, first of all, a little bit that uh, Paul and the, and the Philippian believers found themselves. And what I've done is I've kind of taken the text and I've lifted out the verses that have to do with the circumstances, kind of the, 
the uh, order of events and the chronology, and then I've taken us another section regarding the, uh, if you will, the theology of how Paul views giving and givers and gifts and all of that. And so that's how we'll look at it. I put the verse numbers there at the uh, section headings for you, so hopefully you can follow along. Years earlier than the writing of this letter, the Philippian church had cared for Paul after he left their city. In fact, before he even left, remember, Lydia was born again. She invited them into her home. They went to jail for a little while. They came out, and she brought them back, and they had to leave the city, but she cared for them, and the church there did. The, the uh, corrections officer there in the jail also did the same. Um, but he passed through a couple of other cities, Paul did, and his team, and he arrived at Thessalonica. He had a short ministry there, it appears, from Acts chapter 17. But the scriptures tell us that the Thessalonian church had sent, or sorry, the Philippian church had sent, if I say that, just know what I mean, okay, you'll figure it out. I get them mixed up here because I've been going back and forth between the two. Um, The Philippian church sent support at least twice to Paul to cover the needs that he had while he was in the next city down the road, so to speak. Um, he says uh, in verse 16 in Thessalonica, you send aid once and again for my necessities. This is a phrase that means at least twice, maybe three or four times, not, a, not ten times, but a number of times, more than just once, that he was a recipient of their gifts. And notice that the giving church, the Philippians, was only weeks old at this time. This was a church that was now supporting its first missionary, if you will, even only after a few weeks uh, or months of existence. And by the way, it would have been under some threat of persecution from the authorities as well. If the Apostle Paul and Silas were jailed, they probably feared that they might be the next ones. However, perhaps the Lord arranged things that uh, Paul and Silas so embarrassed the authorities of the city that they might have said for at least a little while, look, we're not going to touch those people because it didn't turn out so well uh, the first time that we did that. So they did have some perhaps relief, but perhaps there was still a, a taste of persecution going on there. Um, but this is such an example of faithfulness the Philippians are bringing to us in supporting the work of the gospel. Now, notice that Thessalonica is a city in the region we call Macedonia. Paul was called to Macedonia by a man in a dream. That's really by God in a dream to him. And he went over to Philippi first and then to Thessalonica. He left Macedonia later. And when he did that, the the, uh, Philippians rather supported him again in the matter of giving and receiving. Look at verse 15 now. I know we're kind of working backwards here, but going in chronological order. He says, In the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Apparently they sent support several times while he was in Thessalonica and then one or more times after he even left and went farther south. Uh, and it wasn't just like you know sending Western Union or you know, depositing into his bank account, sending by PayPal or Zelle or Venmo or whatever, they had to actually transmit the finances by a courier to Paul somehow. So there was some effort involved here. This was not a trivial matter for them to convey this support to him. He says in verse 15, this was in the beginning of the gospel. 
which refers to the start of the gospel work in that region of the world. What the Philippian Christians were doing was assisting the first missionary on the European continent. Think about that. They were seeing to the initial spread of the gospel in a new area where it had never been before. Now, of course, the gospel, that wasn't the absolute beginning of the gospel. Paul is ministering to them in the late 40s, early 50s, writing to them in the 60s. So the gospel had begun in Jerusalem in the 30s. So we're talking a couple of decades, uh, perhaps onward in time. But certainly in this part of the world, this is the beginning of the gospel. 20 years after the gospel began in its very incipient stages in the city of Jerusalem. So not only did they send help quickly after Paul left them and was still in their region, but even as he moved farther away, they continued to help him. They were indeed faithful supporters, and to them would accrue the fruit of perhaps hundreds and thousands of subsequent followers of Christ that came to know him because of their support for the work of the gospel. You don't know that your support, your support now, your support in legacy giving, in your will or trust, you don't know that what kind of fruit that could bear in the future. One person gets saved, some college student, we send him away. All of that fruit is some, has some connection to the ministry that we have here. So it's, it's important for us to, to sow the seed as much as we can here. And, and God often, because we're prideful people, doesn't show us all the results of our work. That's fine. He knows it. And he won't forget our work and labor of love for his name's sake. Now, all that we've just said happened about 10 years before Paul wrote this letter. Just now, he's writing to them and saying that they have renewed their care for him once again. They sent another gift. Verse 18 indicates that Epaphroditus brought with him a significant amount of financial help to the apostle. And in 2.25, it says something about this. It says in Philippians 2.25, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. So Epaphroditus came, and he didn't just bring the money and run. He came and perhaps did some personal ministry alongside of Paul, helped him in some way uh, as he was there uh, in, in a chain, so to speak, for the sake of the gospel. So Paul tells us that Epaphroditus had done this, not just money, but also other help. And this caused verse 10 to be written where Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. You can just put yourself in his shoes. There's no announcement of somebody coming. You don't know if anyone's going to come. You're under house arrest. You're in jail. You're confined. You're unable to move about, unable to work, unable to minister in local churches, can't go to their pulpits and preach. You don't know if somebody's coming and somebody suddenly shows up with a bunch of support for you. Wouldn't you be happy? You would rejoice. You would say, God has not left his servant forsaken. He has cared once again through the people of God. And he says to them, their care flourished again 
at long last is basically what he's saying here in this passage. There was some significant time between their last offering and this one. Maybe it was the whole 10 years or, or eight or nine years since they had given him an offering. And so he's, he's just stating the facts here. But I know that somebody's going to say, or they might say, or somebody reads this with kind of a, a mindset of, you know, Paul's kind of writing between the lines like you guys should have been giving more all this time. And so to avoid the impression that he's complaining or unthankful because of the expanse of time between support, he's quick to add these words, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. The span of time between the last gift and the present gift was not due to some sin on the part of the Philippian Christians. It was not due to apathy on their part. We can easily imagine a church gives money to a missionary and then forgets about the missionary. Oh, we did our duty. On to the next thing. You know, got to support the work of the local church. Got to put new carpet in. Can't support missionaries, that sort of thing. You know, become apathetic about it. Um, that's not the Philippians. They had no bad reason in their hearts for not supporting Paul. For some reason, they lacked the opportunity to show him care. What was that? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But perhaps we could use our sanctified imagination again and suggest maybe there was a financial burden on them. Maybe there was a famine. Maybe there was severe inflation. Maybe there was persecution. Maybe they didn't know where to send the support. Paul was, you know, who, know who, who would know where he was at any given time? Or there were other needs that were more pressing at the time, and like supporting their own ministry and pastor. Whatever the specifics, there was a providential hindrance to them sending financial support to Paul. But now, at last, they had an open door to do so. And it was a very good time because Paul was in prison that meant that their help was all the more timely and beneficial. Uh, you know, he might not have all his meet, uh, needs met in the prison. Uh, you know, you didn't necessarily go to prison in Rome because you didn't have anything better to do. Or you're like, well, at least I'll get, you know, my three square meals there a day and, uh, and get my exercise and, and all of that, and I'll have a roof over my head. Probably not so nice. Um, he couldn't go out and do the tent making that he did before. And in the book of Acts, we read about that as he did with Aquila and Priscilla and all. Local church ministry was out of the question, so he had needs. That's all the kind of situation that brings us to this text. Now, what about how Paul regarded their gifts? And this is where the theology of giving comes in. Notice verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need. Paul was not expressing thanks in some special way because he was unhappy with his circumstances. He may have had need at that time, but he didn't have so much need that he couldn't survive. And so he was thankful for them more than just like, oh, finally relief. You know, I've been living in this complaining mindset all this time, and now I have something that answers my complaint. It wasn't that. He was thankful for more than just the gift. He appreciated the gift, to be sure. But he was thankful for the gift as well as what it meant in the lives of the givers. Think about this. 
Now, instead of, instead of looking at the, the gift from the standpoint of need, look at the next uh, part of the verse. He says, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content, to be content in that state. He regarded their gifts not from the standpoint of neediness or complaint, but from the standpoint of contentedness, no matter if a gift came or not. If you say, well, I would certainly be more content with the gift, then you've missed the point. Don't miss the point. You know, more content. How do you be more content? That means you were less content, discontent, unhappy somehow. He's saying, I'm regarding this gift from the standpoint of whatever state I am in, I have learned to be content. And this is a major point in this section of Scripture. The finances were helpful, but not essential to his spiritual and emotional well-being. He had learned to be content in whatever state he found himself. What does content mean? To be satisfied, to, be, to consider what one has as sufficient. He was learning. He had learned to be content. He was a student at contentment U. Who do you suppose was his teacher in the school of contentment? He had learned by experience the experience of being abased and the experience of abounding. Verse number 12 kind of gives us some more details now as we unpack this idea. I know how to be abased. And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. He's, I was abased, I was hungry, I was suffering need. On the other hand, I've learned also how to abound and to be full and to be in plenty, whether in need or plenty, hungry or well-fed, in plenty or in want, Paul had learned how to deal with those situations with contentment. Underlying this contentment is what? his saving and sanctifying relationship with Jesus. In the Lord I can be content. Content in his love, as my wife sang, content in his grace, content in his goodness, content in his person, content in his love and and kindness and mercy and content in his forgiveness. All things far more important than uh, the financial status, if you will, of the bank account. He had learned to deal with those situations with contentment. Saving and sanctifying relationship with Christ was the foundation. Without that, he would not be truly content. But with Christ, he had the foundation, the underpinnings with which to be experiencing godly, real contentment. Now, on the abased side, I just thought I'd bring out some examples One of those is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, um, 23 through 28, Paul gives this list of experiences that he had. And I think we would agree many of these are abased circumstances. Um, He says, I was in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received the 39 stripes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Does that sound like he's abounding? Uh, Yeah, he's abounding in the bad things. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. I always picture him holding on to one of those round, white, SOS uh, 
life preserver things, you know, and uh, donuts, and it's like, how, what in the world? He's out there in the ocean, hanging on, hoping that the, the sharks aren't going to nibble his toes. In journeys often in perils of waters and perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, Jewish men, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in the wilderness of the sea, of false brothers, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, not having enough clothing besides all the other things. What comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Does it sound like Paul has had some experiences where he knows how to be abased? On the abounding side, we can extrapolate from several texts of Scripture that he also learned by experience uh, in time periods of abundance. He was able to minister without much trouble at times. We know that he received gifts from the Macedonian churches, actually back in, again, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse number 8. He says, I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. Now, he doesn't mean that he was a church robber here. Uh, and when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. We also can see like in Acts, maybe in 17, he, he was working, but then he was able by uh, gifts that came to him to spend more full time in the ministry. Uh, he would have to work and then he would minister on the Sabbath days in the synagogue. But then he was able to expand that ministry because he had more financial support to do so. So he has learned. Um, Paul has advanced, uh, has an advanced degree from Contentment University. May I ask how far along are you in your studies at that university? Think of times when finances have been tight And then think of times when you got a bonus or some relief came from another direction. Have you learned from both situations yet? It may be that if you haven't, God is going to send you back to one of those classes to learn some more at Contentment U. So my question to you is, have you learned to be content? Some of you young people maybe haven't had opportunity because your parents have shielded you from the want, the low finances, the tight budget for the month. Maybe they haven't. But have you learned to be content? Have you learned that lesson? And us who are older, have we learned to be content or are we always looking for more? You know, are we, in the, are we in greed you or in contentment you? One of the biggest areas of challenge and contentment for young people, I'm speaking of young men and women, is wanting and needing a spouse. And I teach those folks all the time, you have got to be content in the state that you are. And then watch and see what God does. But you be serving God you be content in what he's provided. That doesn't mean don't look. <laughs> it doesn't mean don't pay attention to what God is putting out there in front of you, but um, be content. Then after you get married, one of the biggest challenges is being content with the spouse that you just married. Why is that? 
you're discontent in the soul. Okay, that, I got married. Now that's fixed. Well, you're discontent in that state. How are you going to fix that? You've got to learn to be content. Now we move on then to verse 13. Paul says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I don't want you to count me as a heretic, but this often has been misapplied to mean that Christians can do anything at all through Christ who strengthens us. Is that true, anything at all? Well, I think the answer is obviously not. We cannot do things outside of God's will. We cannot sin. We cannot do things that we are physically or mentally capable of doing. The context has to be considered here. Paul is speaking about two states of financial wellness, we can say, having what you need and and being in, in want. He's not talking about being obscenely rich, okay? That's off the table. That's not included in the all things that we can do through Christ who strengthens us. If God gives us riches, then we have to be very careful. But the meaning is that he can handle, Paul can handle the whole range of states between hunger and fullness, and he does so through the strength that Christ provides him. When things are down, he can handle it without going sour. When things are up, he can handle that too without becoming self-sufficient and forgetting God like, like the Israelites did. Remember, they were brought into a land flowing with milk and honey. They lived in houses they didn't build. They drew from wells they didn't dig. They plucked from trees they didn't plant, and they forgot God. When you learn contentment, In the right way, you learn contentment and you learn not to hold on to those material things or to replace God with them in your self-sufficiency. The Lord helps him in that whole range of circumstances. I'm just thinking right now, what's more dangerous, for you to be in need or you to be in want? I mean, in in, uh, fullness. To To be abased or abound, which is more dangerous? Actually, to be abounding is more dangerous when you're needy, what do you do? God, help me. You know, when you abound, what do you do? Forget to pray, right? That's more dangerous. So when you are in need, maybe give an extra thanks to the Lord. Lord, thank you for keeping me dependent upon you instead of dependent upon myself. That's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me along this spectrum of need to fullness. I can handle that. I've learned how to do that. Have you learned how to do that? Now let's move to verses 17 to 18. Paul regards their gift uh, not from the standpoint of need. He regards it from the standpoint of contentedness. Thirdly, he regards their gift not greedily. Notice verse 17 says, Not that I seek the gift. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul talks about giving as well, and he says, Look, it's not the giving. It's, it's, we're not seeking your things. We're seeking you. You. Not that I seek the gift. Paul's grateful for the gift. But if you put yourself in a, in a sanctified state of mind, like Paul has, you will know what he means when he says, I'm not seeking the gift. Receiving a gift, what he means is it's not just good for the recipient. It's more blessed 
to give than it is to receive, isn't it? Have you had the blessing of that feeling in your life? The Christian recipient of a gift is extra glad because the gift indicates something about the status of the giver, about his spiritual condition. It shows, for among other things, that the giver has been emancipated from the love of money, has been emancipated from the love of money, at least to some extent. And he's been given a heart that cares for others, not just himself. This is huge spiritual progress for people who were trapped in a self-worshipping, self-autonomous state before they came to faith in Christ. They were slaves of sin, and now they're trying to help somebody preach the gospel to others. That's a total transformation in somebody's mindset. Gifts are nice, but giving is better for the giver. He regards the gift not not greedily also, but as a fruit for the giver. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. You see, Paul is regarding the gift from an unselfish standpoint, whereby he doesn't want to just add to his bank account. He wants to add to the spiritual accounts of those who are giving to him. Another thing that happens for the giver is that they gain fruit by giving away the result of their labors. You never lose by giving to God. Do you agree? You never lose by giving to God. Now, you can lose if you give to Bernie Madoff. You can lose if you give to a bad steward, a doctrinally unsound ministry. You can you know, lose if you give to bad causes, irresponsible stewards, fraudsters aberrant ministries, and so on, but you cannot lose when you give to genuine works of the Lord, even if those ministries are imperfect. And how many of them are imperfect? 100%. Okay, So you're always going to be able to find some flaw and some little inefficiency or something you don't quite exactly like or whatever, but that's just the nature of the beast in our sin-cursed world. Even so, God accounts that giving as fruit. And hopefully that is overflowing fruit. I often wonder, some of us are you know, very tied into our finances and we want to know that our bank account balance is correct and get it balanced to the penny and um, make sure that no fraud has occurred. That's another good excuse to keep looking at your investment accounts or your bank account. I wonder if we could log into heaven.com and look at our investment accounts over there. What would we find? Is Mother Hubbard's cupboard a little bit bare? Or have we invested in heavenly things? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, a long time ago, I consigned myself to the fact, you know, as a, well, just imagine as a young man, 15, 16, 17 years old, and you're thinking about, you know, you like, there's some things that young men like. One of them is cars. And... You're hanging on to this car, and you want to keep it nice and shiny and all that, and it starts getting rusty, and you're like, man, this is bad news. Our brother knows exactly what I'm talking about. He's, he's in the battle of rust right now. 
And uh, I've got you beat, though, brother. I've got more rust in my vehicles than you've got on your vehicles. <laughs> um, these things are, are, I mean, if you leave it long enough, it's just going to be a pile of, of oxidized metal, right? A little rubber sitting there. It's terrible. That's what happens in this world, but not when you lay up treasures in heaven. Now, he also regards the gift here, not, not from a standpoint of greed, not, you know, but as fruit for the giver. He also regards it as fully sufficient. Notice verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things that were sent from you. This letter is something of, of a receipt without stating the actual dollar amount, so to speak, or shekel amount. He gave everything that, or received everything that Epaphroditus brought to him. Um, this was not an obligatory payment. It was not a wage, so to speak. And I, I'll let you read the note there. I don't want to go into that little quibble with one of the translations. But Paul received what God thought he needed. And he was grateful for it. What God gives you is what he figures that you need. And God never figures wrong. He also, maybe in the other way of looking at it, he, he gives you what he knows you can handle, given your level of stewardship faithfulness. So if God's given you that much, then say, well, that must be what he wants me to be content with. Be content with that then. Paul considers this also an offering to God, a sacrificial offering to God. Look at what he says at the end of verse 18, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. We studied about Old Testament sacrificial language here, and you, you might ask, well, do we do Old Testament sacrifices today? No, we don't. But we do things that are like them. Paul said I, he was being poured out as a drink offering. Remember that from earlier in the book? Upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. He was the topper, if you will, to their work. And what he's getting at is the idea that life is service and service is worship. When you get that idea, you'll be really living for God. That is, when you see your life as something more than just living a human life, but when you see it as something that can be used as a sacrifice to God, to serve Him, to live for Him, to spend your time uh, invested in the things of God and the kingdom of heaven, being poured out to the last drop, then you're really living with eternal profit. I'll let you read that little boxed statement there, that sidebar that I put from my earlier messages on this subject. And then also Paul looks at this gift as not, as I called it, not a, a stretch. These gifts that he got were not a stretch. Giving to God's work is not a stretch. Why is that? Why did I say it that way? Well, these are two other portions, but in those portions he says, look, if we've shared our spiritual things with you, of what comparison could you what, what comparison could you offer to material things that are that are used to remunerate, if you will, the minister of the gospel? It's not a big deal to share some material things to those who are ministering to you spiritually. If you compare spiritual and material, what's more weighty? <laughs> material things are very lightweight, very lightweight, very temporary. Financial support is necessary since those ministering spiritual things have costs associated 
with that ministry to do so. In Paul's case, he had to travel, he needed food, he needed lodging, he needed finances to pay for clothing and the shoes that he was wearing out. Today, we have the cost of maintaining a building, putting, you know, putting out the bill, paying the bills for electric and heat, meeting uh, government building codes. We need to have a phone service, people to call in on. We need to have uh, equipment to do uh, live streaming and audio recording and money to support the pastors and missionaries and so on and so forth. If you benefit from the Christian ministry, you ought to give to the Christian ministry in order to support the work. It's, it's not just something that's done and costs nothing. It does cost because this is, this is the world in which we live. And when you do that, do not fear that God will forget you or not supply your needs. Look at verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He's speaking here about material needs, not just spiritual needs. God will provide for your spiritual needs, right? He will. But this text is material needs. And it's not wrong to ask God to supply those material needs. It's definitely right to ask him to supply what you need when you need it. Yeah, absolutely. Not wants, of course. Needs. It says, my God shall supply all your wants. Oh, no, I read that wrong. All your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Again, with the right, with the right estimation of what a need is. You know, we think a lot of things are needs, and now it's moved from needs to rights. You know, we have the right to this and that and the other thing, and the right for somebody else to pay for it. No, we don't. God supplies needs like clothing, housing, f- drink, food, okay? That's, that's it. If you have that, you have what you need. You might not be the, the best. I mean, how... Do you agree with that? Or do you say, if I, don't, if I don't have hot, cold running water in my house, and I don't have heating and air conditioning, and I don't have carpet, and I don't have hardwood floors, and I don't have tile in my bathroom and kitchen, and all that, is that what you think a need is? That's not a need. You go to, uh, like our brother's saying, different places in the world, and you'll find out those people can be perfectly content and not have all the accoutrements that you have in your palaces in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Where does the supply come from here? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Of course, in spiritual terms, he, he has the riches of wisdom, the riches of knowledge, the riches of glory. He has uh, the riches of the future inheritance of the, of the saints. He has unsearchable riches. He has riches and glory in Ephesians chapter 3, a rich, full assurance of understanding. That is a richness that you can have as well. Earthly riches, however, are uncertain. But according to those riches, like he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. All of the fullness of the earth belongs to the Lord. And he can share with you whatever little portion that he wants to share with you. If you have a need, it's no problem for him. Read some stories of missionaries, read something of George Mueller, and hear some accounts, fascinating accounts of how God supplied through broken down vehicles and people that wanted to give away things and didn't know the need that existed, but God did. 
obviously the, the legitimate needs we have combined with the source of their supply implies that there are certain things that will not be supplied to us by God. Selfish wants, unholy desires, things that would in the end be harmful for us. Those things are not on the menu of God's supply. Do you realize that God withholds some nice things from you because they would be harmful to you? Those super abundances that would be harmful? Now, God is particularly interested in supplying His people with what they need to serve Him, not what they need need to spend on themselves, on themselves rather. A concrete example is found in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God can make all grace abound toward you so that having all that is needed, you can abound in every good work. So you say, look, I gave away $100 to do that good work. Well, you pray and trust God to give you that back so you can do it again, right? That's it. You you know, if you're going to give the good work and then nothing else, then why would God give you if you're not going to use it for good? So he does that. If you desire to serve God, be be ready to receive what is necessary to do that. If you're doing good works for God, I believe that we can hold on to that promise that he will supply all of our needs. I got to bring this to a conclusion here quickly. There's a lot to chew on. The example of the Philippian church and supporting missionary ministry, Paul's way of looking at the gift, both from his side as the recipient, but also from the donor's side, and the confidence that God will supply all of our needs in Christ. This message is about giving and about receiving. It's about thanksgiving and it's about contentment, as the Apostle Paul gives thanks for the support of the Philippian church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to regard the matter of giving and receiving as Paul does and all the points that we brought out here today. I pray this message has sanctified us, if no other way than to teach us to be more content with what you have allotted to us at the present time. Lord, we pray with the psalmist, uh, or the writer of the Proverbs, Lord, we, we pray, don't give us poverty nor riches, but just what we need to give by and do the things that you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.